Will you guys turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2? We're going to be in verses 14 through 19 this morning. You remember we're making our way uh, sort of through the pastoral epistles, which are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then Paul's letter to Titus. But I'm going to read verses 14 through 19 for us. We'll pray and then we'll get started. This is the word of the Lord. Will you stand with me actually? As I read God's Word. Remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let's pray together. Now, O Lord, may the words of of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. Well, the first phrase in verse 14, the first verse of our text this morning, tells us that what we have to do by way of introduction is to hearken back to what we heard last week. Look at verse 14. What's the first few words you see? Remind them of these things. That is, Timothy, remind them of the things that I just wrote earlier in chapter 2. And those are the things uh, that David spoke about last week. And David's sermon really handled some of the most massive topics that we can think of in the Christian life. Ones that in many ways are sort of central to what we mean when we say Christian discipleship. What does it mean when it looks, what does it look like and what does it mean to follow Jesus? And last week, the, one of the things that we heard was that suffering is a part of the Christian life. Paul endures everything for the sake of the elect. He's in chains, in prison, in Rome, and he's telling Timothy, That's part and parcel of the Christian life. Suffering doesn't escape you in the Christian life. Now for Paul, that was like direct suffering. You know what I mean? It was like, I say these things, I proclaim the gospel, and that's offensive in the society that I live in in Rome. And so I get punished directly for like gospel proclamation. That's suffering in the Christian life. But also there's a kind of suffering in the Christian life that I think we need to be reminded of. And that is simple uh, withdrawal from sin, uh, withstanding the, the temptations that come daily in the Christian life. That can be really, really painful. It can be really painful to walk away from things that Christ calls us to walk away from because our hearts and our souls have been so tied to them over the years. And so I think that's suffering too. And Paul says, you got to remind them of these things. Remind them that that's always going to be a part of it. Of course, the blessing that God gives the church is everlasting. It'll always be, and it takes a million different directions, and the joy that we find in the Christian life is eternal. But suffering's a part of that. 
And it works in a way that sometimes we don't understand. And sometimes enduring it is all that we can do. So that's one thing. Suffering, the suffering that we have, God's glory and the joy that we find in the Christian life, that value of that exceeds the momentary and light affliction he's experiencing. David talked about that last week. But the other thing that we read about is the reality of the resurrection, the future resurrection. Resurrection, you know, Christ's resurrection, um, but also His resurrection of the rest of mankind, either to eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, or resurrection to eternal punishment. Those things are real. And we have to be reminded of that, because as our world, the society that we live in, I just mean the world out there, as it becomes increasingly apathetic to the gospel, the mindset that those things are coming, that they're real, that they're important, that mindset wears off. There's this great quote that the uh, reformer Martin Luther said after he broke from the church and kind of went in the direction of Protestantism, formed um, the Protestant church in Germany. He I don't know if this is this was I don't know where I read this or if I saw this in the movie about his life, but there's this moment where he's preaching every single week in this church, and his people come to him and they say, "Why is it that every single week you say the exact same thing? You always say the same thing. You always tell us that the gospel is by grace through faith. You're a doctor of theology. Surely there is something else." To talk about, do you not prepare before you get up here on Sunday mornings? And he said, no, I say that every single week because every week I walk into this church and I see a people that's, what, forgotten the gospel. And so we have to be reminded of these things. Paul knows that these things are things that we have to tell ourselves over and over and over again because the power of sin is so pervasive and doubt in the Christian life and sin and the ability that we have to walk away from Jesus over and over again and be faithless, it happens so often and we're so prone to it. And so to be reminded this final line where Paul says in this great little piece of catechesis that David talked about last week, even when we're faithless, behold, he's faithful is something that we have to be reminded of. That's important for our passage this morning because I think simple speech, just really simple talk about the gospel and about God's simple, clear messages about everything that God is for us in Christ is important because it stands so starkly against the warnings that we find in our passage today. That is, there's a temptation to speak very different things other than the clear warnings of the gospel. So what I want to do, I just want to say two things this morning. And that is that the gospel is a word against words, against too many words. And then finally, I just want to ask what this firm foundation is in verse 19. But I think that the gospel proclamation is a word against words. It's a war against the chaos of too much talking. It's a word that destroys the cacophony that came after the Tower of Babel and a word that harmonizes the heart language of all the nations of the earth. It divides the hard, self-pursuing heart of the world and it exposes the filth that lives therein. One of my favorite uh, psalms is Psalm 29. 
And that whole psalm is David just repeating over and over again the different elements of the majesty of God's Word. And he says things like, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. The words of man, like Hymenaeus, we read that come from Hymenaeus and Philetus, and from all of us, the word, those words, the words of man distinct over and against the word of God, do quite the opposite. They don't do the things that we learn that God, God's word does in Psalm 29. They can cause us to quarrel and argue with each other. They can ruin our hearers. Our words can become irreverent babble, and they lead people to ungodliness, and their talk spreads like gangrene. Those are terrible, terrible, awful, horrific things that we, lead, that we read Paul saying here this morning that just simply come from talking too much. They just come from talking. They just come from talking. Man's words are that dangerous set over and against the Word of God. That's the contrast I think we find in our passage this morning. Y'all, I come from a family of talkers, big talkers. And I don't mean just my mom and my dad. I mean my whole extended family. They like small talk. They like big talk. They like telling wild and outrageous stories. And they love to grandstand and hold forth. And sadly, I know that I've inherited... Every bit of that. And my family topping someone. You guys know what I mean by that, right? Topping someone else's story. That's not a social faux pas. That's eagerly expected. That's hoped for. People reward that kind of behavior in my family. And as a child, that was the kind of thing I was rewarded for. And in fact, it it was not until college that I learned there was anything socially cumbersome about topping. Or being a topper. And so when somebody accused me of that, I not only had to ask what it meant, but I had to know why it was bad. Because I never, I just, I didn't know. And it really, frankly, wasn't until I developed long-term friends and until I got married that I learned that words have a power far beyond mere entertainment. I learned, of course, as I got married and as I got friends that cared about me and I spent a lot of time with, that words can really wound you. They can wound people deeply. And they're powerful. They're strong. And they do things that can absolutely destroy communities. For Paul and for Timothy, these words that these men were saying at the church in Ephesus had become a devious and destructive force of division, of separation. Not of unity, but of division. How did that happen? How does that happen? Well, here, we know very little about how that happened. I mean, we read, we read that they, Hymenaeus and Philetus, were teaching something that violated the basic truth of the resurrection. They're saying that the resurrection has already happened. And we don't necessarily know exactly what that means. I mean, of course, Jesus' resurrection has already happened. Did they mean that 
the resurrection of the church, like some kind of spiritual resurrection where the church no longer has sin, they don't sin anymore, or where the effects of the curse after the fall had been up. We don't know. We don't know exactly what that means. But I think what we can say about this passage, what we will say about this passage this morning, with absolute certainty, without equivocating, is that the church needs people, this church in Ephesus, this church in Columbia, the global church, needs people that have learned the almost impossible task of bridling the tongue. The man or woman who's learned the art of mastering and bridling the tongue is a mature person and someone the church must have and must put to work. Now, I heard Sinclair Ferguson say this a while ago, but I found this to be true. That when you read, say, like commentaries on this passage or commentaries on the passage in James 3, Remember, James says that the tongue is like the rudder of a ship. It'll control the body. Anywhere the tongue goes, boom, that's where the body goes. And just like a tiny match can ignite a forest and burn it to the ground, the tongue can render that same kind of destruction. When you read the church fathers or or anybody that's thought about these passages and they ask the question, what does it mean to bridle the tongue? What does that look like? Almost always they say, bridling the tongue means learning to be silent. It doesn't mean learning to move the tongue in a certain direction. It doesn't mean learning to sharpen the tongue. It doesn't mean learning to be a better user of it. It means stop using it, by and large. That's an amazing thing in the ancient world. That's totally amazing. 2,000 years ago, where artistic rhetoric was what it was all about, where fortitude on the stage were virtues, to say that bridling the tongue, that silence is more important than just tons of speech, that's as countercultural as it gets. For someone to stand up and dazzle someone else with words is something that we've always prized. We still do it. I mean, even though it's different, it was different then than it is now, we still expect that from our politicians. We still expect that from people that we respect. Being able to stand up and sort of dazzle people, that's a good thing. But the, the Bible, the Scriptures say something very different. The Bible knows that God is the only one with the Word and that talk can be cheap. Now, there's like a thousand different directions you can go with talking about talk. And I thought maybe just because... It's the one that I feel so prone to and that, you know, I think you can see in a church so often um, that I think this passage helps us understand is just, and I think we should talk about, is just gossip. Everybody in this room knows the danger and the heartache that gossip can bring or just the heartache that speaking without thinking brings. I mean, I know I do. It's a great joy to me to see friendships cropping up in this church. And I know it's a great joy to see, for all of you to see that too. After a year, you see people moving towards each other, gaining lots of intimacy with each other, knowing things about each other. That's good. That's an awesome thing. But that also always has the potential to bring gossip. It always has the potential to bring us into a situation where we learn to speak ill of someone. 
speaking ill of someone or gossiping about someone, and this is the final word on the subject, is the exact opposite of the way that Jesus Christ talks to His Father about people, isn't it? Learning to speak sweetly about somebody else is the way that Jesus talks to His Father about that person. And the opposite of that is not the way that Jesus does it. That's standing against Jesus. Also, I think... um, I, I didn't. It was fun. I don't know how much to talk about this, but I do. I do want to just mention the absolute onslaught of words that our society throws at us. I don't want to name any particular kind of media or something like that. I mean, I know that gets cheesy, but ninety nine point nine percent of some of the stuff that our society throws at us can be absolutely a messenger of Satan. Somebody sent me a well an article the other day. That the title of it was 27 things that normal people do that make people with anxiety crazy. That's terrible. Why would you, why would you send that to someone? I mean, I don't, that made me anxious and made me terrified. And then on the corner, up in the top corner of the website was this like ridiculous thing. It was like wine 101, how to learn wine in the language of online dating. So a Pinot Noir from 2010 was a hottie with a medium body. That is, you see what I'm, this is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. And our scriptures are so sublime. We need to stay away from that stuff and have the courage to call it what it is. It's too much. And it won't rest, and you won't keep up with it, and it doesn't matter, and it will rot your soul. It will. It will. Listen to things that build you up. Surround yourself with people that speak the gospel sweetly to you. Surround yourself with people that challenge you to put to death the deeds of the body and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Surround yourself with people that speak with great pride and love for their spouses and their children. Surround yourself with people that compliment their friends often and stay away from the opposite because it spreads like gangrene and it makes us less like God, which is what Paul says in verse 16. Well, finally, what's Timothy to do? He knows he's to stay away from all that. He knows that Hymenaeus and Philetus have become a problem in the church at Ephesus. But what is he to do? Well, he's to become a workman, and that's one that's not ashamed. Paul is saying to Timothy, a little less talk and a lot more action. What the church needs is someone who speaks less of their words and more of God's words. That's the image here Paul uses for Timothy. He says, rightly, be somebody that rightly handles the word of truth. And in that case, in this case, rightly handling the word of truth is an image like a, when he's talking about a workman, it's like a farmer that knows how to plow a straight furrow. Or a carpenter that can cut a board straight and use that straight board to build a square cabinet. Or a tailor that can cut clothes in such a way that he can clothe his wearers and build them a situation. All of these things are things that are useful things that build those people up, things that don't expose them, something that makes plants grow, 
that gives cabinets a foundation and that clothes their wares. That's what it means to rightly handle the word of truth. And then if you're that kind of person, you can stand back and not be ashamed of your work. If you're a guy that's all over the place in your field, or you cut a board that goes this way and that, and it bobbles your cabinet, or your clothes get a tear in them, you stand back from that work and you're ashamed. But not so if you do the opposite. Well, finally, what do you think this foundation is here? I just want to ask, and we'll close with this. Verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. What do you think that foundation is? I mean, it could be, maybe it's the Scriptures. Maybe it's the Gospel. Maybe it's the work of Christ. could be any of those things, couldn't it? I don't think it's the Scriptures, though, because he says that the thing that this is, this foundation, bears a Scripture verse, which is, the Lord knows who are His. I think the firm foundation that stands here is the church. It's the church at Ephesus, and it's the church globally, and it's the church throughout history. And what's inscribed on that foundation is, the Lord knows those that are His. That's of incredible encouragement to me because I believe I'm part of the church and I think you are too. And to believe that the church is a foundation that can't be shaken harkens back to Jesus' wonderful words that He's going to build His church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And so Timothy is a workman that's building an unshakable foundation, one that he doesn't need to be ashamed of. That is, a faithful local church in Ephesus. He's a workman that for eternity will be able to stand back and look at his work and feel no shame. We can think the same thing. I mean, we can watch how we talk and we need to watch our lives and we can await a Lord that will one day stamp and establish this community as an eternal one, a brotherhood and a sisterhood of a gazillion years. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word, and we thank You for the way that it breaks into our hearts and into our lives, and it comforts us. I know there's many of us here, me included, come here this morning with heavy hearts, hearts that are afraid of the sin, of our own sin, hearts that maybe don't trust You in the way that we ought to, and I pray that Your Word would come in this morning and change that. Would You send us out this morning encouraged, faithful workmen, eager to declare your word to a world that does not know your son. In your name we pray. Amen.